Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Westminster Shorter Catechism famously begins with a question, what is the chief end of man? And many of us learned that question or learned the answer to that question early on in our Christian life, or some of you even as children were taught that question and its answer. You know it very well, that the chief end of man, the chief aim of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And you learn that, and you learn that as a young child, you learn that as a a new believer, and you rejoice because all of life is clear now. You know exactly what you're here for. You know exactly what your purpose is. You know exactly what to aim for, and you march forward in such confidence until, inevitably, you reach some fork in the road. Some decision that you have to make where you haven't lost sight of the end, you haven't necessarily forgotten the aim, but all of a sudden it's not clear exactly which pathway gets you to that end. In other words, there are some areas and some decisions that you face in life, some matters that you stumble upon, which maybe previously you may have looked at all of life as black and white, but suddenly it's gray. Suddenly, the decisions aren't so clear. Suddenly, you encounter things that you have never faced before, and you haven't lost your commitment to glorifying God, but you don't know exactly what He would have you to do. You can't find exactly a verse of Scripture that speaks to this particular issue, some principle, some prohibition, and you don't know. People respond to those kind of complexities in life in different ways. Some people face the complexities and all the challenges and hear all the different opinions and answers, and they sort of throw their hands up, and they embrace what we might call libertinism. That is to say, they have so much difficulty with making critical judgments in those, they just throw critical judgment out the window altogether. They throw boundaries, they throw out rules, they throw out requirements, they throw out all that stuff, they get rid of all the categories, and they face the complexity by embracing as much of it as possible. They emphasize, in other words, individual freedom, individual liberty. They are libertines. There's another group that responds to the complexities of life with what we might call legalism. That is to say that they see all the complexities and they immediately busy themselves to categorize every one of them to paint everything that they can as black and white as they can, to create as many rules and as many requirements and as many restraints and controls and regulations, to emphasize laws, to emphasize all of the mandates that they think that they could uh, conceivably find, to reduce everything, every possible decision in life to a simple yes or no, or right or wrong, or do or don't. Most Christians, however somewhere along the way, realize that neither of those categories, neither of those pathways, I should say, is attractive or helpful. They understand that there are certainly dangers with pretending that there are no rules. They know the Bible speaks about obedience and disobedience. They know the Bible speaks about uh, judgment and chastisement. They know the Bible speaks about sin and repentance. They see it all over the pages of Scripture, and so they understand that there are certainly are personal freedoms and liberties, but they understand that there's also a place for rules. They understand that there's a place for right and wrong. They understand the dangers of libertinism. 
But at the same time, they understand that there are dangers in drifting into legalism, trying to reduce all of life to nothing but rules, making everything black and right and right and wrong, creating categories where the Bible doesn't even speak clearly of categories, rules and regulations where there are no clear principles. And so Christians honestly struggle. They want to know, how do I glorify God in the face of all these complexities? Which pathway do I choose to get me to the stated end? They struggle with knowing how to make difficult decisions about things like jobs and relationship and types of entertainment or types of clothing or finances or schedules or timing or any number of things. In fact, it's dangerous to get too explicit even in giving illustrations and examples because people have such varied opinions about so many things. But it leaves us with the question, I mean, how do you make these difficult decisions? How do you glorify God in gray areas? How do you understand how to keep the aim on His glory? Well, that's what 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 has all been about. We've been looking at it for a few weeks here, looking at these sections where Paul has been addressing the issue really in the Corinthians' life. And today we come to the end of chapter 10, where Paul is offering up a sort of a summary of everything that he said so far. Helpful review, the high points, we might say, of his argument. A summary of principles regarding the challenges of how to make these difficult decisions. And the aim is clearly stated in verse 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what this is about. That's what this whole section is about. That's what these three chapters are about. That's what everything is aiming at. That is, that is Paul's sort of summary statement of it all. That on all the things he's told us, that's what we are shooting for. But he understands it's not always easy to answer the questions about how to do that. And so he's been laying out for us and he summarizes for us here the principles of how to do that. Those areas where there are no clear commands, there are no clear mandates from God or prohibitions from God one way or the other. Gray areas where Christians have different sensitivities and different opinions. Now I need to stop and just mention that while we certainly recognize there are gray areas, we don't don't suggest that all of life is gray. We don't suggest that there are no black and white issues. We don't suggest that everything is difficult and everything must be up for grabs. There certainly, uh, certainly are gray areas, but there certainly are areas that are clearly right and wrong. There clearly are mandates and prohibitions and commandments within the pages of Scripture. Everything is not subject to personal opinion. In fact, when you come to an area where you are unsure about how to best glorify God, you ought to begin with Scripture. You ought to begin by looking into the Scripture as much as you can and trying to struggle with finding verses and finding passages that might address the issue. Maybe some verse that you haven't seen before. Maybe some application of a verse. Or maybe some implication from some theological truth that you've not really considered before. Maybe some specific prohibition, some specific example from some godly and uh, biblical saint. 
But we need to go search the scripture. We need to read it on our own. We need to ask people around us that we see who are living godly lives and handle the word carefully and accurately. We need to pick up books that can help inform us as to the teaching of scripture. We need to do all that. And over and above that, we need to pray. We need to ask God to give us wisdom in these difficult decisions. We need to ask God to help us to see the biased tendencies of our own sinful desires and help us to eradicate the clouds of, of sinful bias so that we can see with clarity exactly what His will is. We need to pray and ask God to direct us in those things. We need to ask people around us for counsel. The Scripture says, in a multitude or an abundance of counsel, there's safety And so in these difficult decisions where we ourselves have done some searching and haven't arrived at answers and we're still not sure, we need to go to people we respect and say, how have you handled these situations? What have you done? There are all kinds of of, of patterns of recourse that we can take as we enter these gray areas and try to discern what the Lord's will is. And those things need to be riveted in our minds. They ought to be our first course of action and constantly bathing our minds in the word of God in prayer and in counsel. But even after all those steps, we may still find areas where we're unsure of what best glorifies God. How best to aim for His glory. We still haven't found a clear mandate in God's Word. There still are areas that aren't black and white, it seems. They're gray. We know that we still are bound to the glory of God. We're just not sure which option best achieves that. Well, that's what these verses are about this morning. That's what this section's about. Those are the questions that Paul's trying to help us answer. And and I think he does that here. I believe he helps us with that by giving us four critical factors to consider when making decisions in gray areas. Four criteria, you might say, or issues that you need to ponder with every one of these decisions as you approach them. Four factors to consider in making decisions in gray areas. The first one Paul gives to us in verse 23, and it's the issue of personal harm. If you're going to know how to make wise and godly decisions, if you're going to know how to glorify God in the gray areas, one of the fundamental things that you've got to learn to ask yourself about the decisions is not just technically whether or not they're uh, whether or not they're prohibited or, or allowed or commanded or whatever. It's not technically whether you can find a law against it. But it is to ask yourself whether or not it is profitable. Whether or not it is helpful or from a negative side, we would say whether or not it's harmful or whether or not it would hurt me. And this is where you need to really begin, Paul wants them to ask this. He says it to them in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 10. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Remember, he's really writing this entire letter in response to a letter that he received from them. And throughout this, we've noted a number of times how Paul quotes from them. You wrote to me, and he'll have some quote that they gave, And this was apparently one of their quotes or one of their slogans. In fact, you may remember back in chapter 6, he had used the exact same slogan again, always offering it in terms of a contrast. Well, he's, he's doing it again here. This is probably what they used whenever they're 
behavior was questioned by others, or we might say whenever they were in questionable behavior, their sort of knee-jerk reaction, their sort of response was just say, well, all things are lawful for me. Who are you to judge me? Who are you to speak against me? All things are, I'm free to do this in Christ. Now, these people have most likely learned about Christian freedom from Paul himself. Many people think that Paul wrote the book of Galatians while he was at Corinth. That is to say that while he was writing one of the great treatises in all of Scripture on Christian freedom, he was at the same time ministering to these people. And there would have no doubt been a natural overflow of those things that he was writing in that book into his teaching among the Corinthians themselves. They would have heard frequently the kind of things that Paul told the Galatians, like Galatians 5.1, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's there talking about submitting to Old Testament laws, submitting to things like circumcision and dietary laws, other Old Testament laws that he clearly teaches are no longer binding on believers. And really beyond that, anything that is beyond the scope of God's mandate in Scripture, he's saying don't submit yourself to these laws, man-made laws, distorted Old Testament laws, whatever you think they may be. It's out of this teaching that these believers would have learned freedom. And no doubt out of that teaching that they themselves coined this slogan. All things are lawful. I mean, I heard it from the Apostle Paul myself. He, He taught me that himself. Well, Paul quotes their slogan. And interestingly, he doesn't backtrack on the issue of Christian freedom. He doesn't doesn't quote their their slogan and say, yeah, but let me give you 12, 15, 18, 30, 40 rules to sort of rein all that in. He doesn't do that. He doesn't backtrack on the issue of Christian freedom. He doesn't shift away from what he may have previously taught them in the past, but he shifts not from the freedom itself, but from the purpose of it. And he's done this a number of times as we've seen. He shifts from the point of freedom for personal enjoyment to the point of freedom for glorifying God. And he tells them that in fact, their freedom may lead to sorrow. Their freedom may lead to hurt. It may lead to pain. Freedoms, in other words, ironically, can quickly become slavery. This is what Paul tells the Galatians even. He says that we're not to use our freedoms for indulgence of the flesh, those things which may previously have bound us in our pre-Christian days. You can, you can be trapped in something that's equally as dangerous as any legalism if you are trapped in the indulgences of your flesh, something that's equally able to control you, something that's equally able to steal your joy, something that's equally able to do you harm, maybe more able. So Paul tells us we need to consider that our so-called freedoms might just lead us to personal harm. This is what he tells them here. This is what he told them. If you flip back to chapter 6, remember... When he quotes this there in verse 12 of that same chapter, 
very same words, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And then he expands on that. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated or enslaved or captivated by anything. And this is the reality that you and I need to face when we're dealing with gray areas. We need to realize that as we make these critical decisions at these critical times, that that while some things may be potentially allowable, that is to say, there may be some things where there is no clear statement in Scripture regarding that. We need to realize as we make those decisions that by common sense or by common testimony, the thing we're dealing with may be hurtful. It may be enslaving. And all you really need to do is just look around you. Look at the people you see in your life. Look at the people you see in the world. Look at the people who are enslaved to so many trivial things. They're trivial on the surface, but they become eternal if you become their slave. You see people engage in some of these activities. You see people participate in some of these things. They say that they're fine. They say that it doesn't bother them. They say you don't, they don't struggle with it. They can do what they do. They can wear what they wear. They can go where they go. They can eat what they eat. They can do all these things. And yet there's enough evidence in your life or in the life of others that these things have a potentially enslaving power may have even been something that enslaved you in the past, something that was related to your pre-Christian days, and you know the control it had on you. And so as you come to these gray areas, Paul wants you and he wants me to ask these basic questions. Is there something that could potentially enslave me? Is there something that could potentially harm me? Is there really anything helpful? Is there really any reward? Is there really any benefit? And are the risk of being dominated worth whatever kind of potential reward and benefit is there? Is there an alternative that could allow me to glorify God without the same enslaving potential? These are the kind of questions that Paul wants us to ask if we're going to know how to navigate through these gray areas. Secondly, there's a second factor that Paul wants us to consider in glorifying God in the gray areas, and that's the priority of your neighbor. This is the second guiding principle to help you through these complicated questions where there's no clear command or mandate. Paul's telling us we need to ask ourselves ultimately what is most beneficial for our neighbor. And this is what he says at the second half of verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Not all things edify. And in case you wonder who he's talking about edifying, he clarifies it in verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. In other words, Paul's saying that when you come to a decision and you've searched out the word of God and you haven't found any clear mandate or command that could guide you, when you find yourself still struggling to know how to glorify God, one of the primary questions you need to ask is what best serves others? What best serves my neighbor? It's not about me. It's not about my pleasure. It's not about my security. It's not about my protection. It's not about me. It's not about my rights, about my name, about my fame. Whatever it is, it's not about me. 
And we need to ask ourselves how we can be servants of God. Somebody once said that everyone loves to speak about being a servant until they're treated like one. Well, that's what Paul's saying you need to be willing to do. You need to be willing to put yourself in the place of a servant, even if it means treating, being treated like a servant. And you no longer getting recognition, you no longer getting benefit, you no longer getting pleasure for the sake of others. In other words, our primary concern in decision making is not our own good, but the good of others. Now that's sometimes even itself a multifaceted decision. There are people that the Lord entrusts to your care. There are your family members. There are There are those that you may minister to. There are those who are in the church. There are those who are outside the church. There are responsibilities which are clearly delineated for us and priorities even in those relationships that are delineated within Scripture. But as we work through those relationships, the one thing that is certainly clear is that it is not about you. Now, this is a drastic contrast to what you will hear from the world or... or Maybe what someone would tell you in the midst of these decisions, it's certainly a drastic contrast to human nature. You go to someone in the world with these kind of difficult decisions, and you're going to hear something like, well, just follow your heart. Somebody, my mom used to say that to me whenever I was growing up, and I would have you know, difficult decisions. I thought you know, about maybe dating some girl. I wasn't sure if I should ask her out. She said, just follow your heart. It sounded so profound. Until I learned what my heart was. My heart is, was sinful. And even after I came to know Christ, it still deceives me. In fact, that, that, that often is a, a recipe for doing nothing but selfish gain. Seeking nothing but selfish gain. We often know that, that to follow our hearts is just to follow our personal desires. It's to follow our feelings. It's to follow what satisfies us. That's not the biblical mandate. The biblical mandate tells you the exact opposite. That you might have to deny your heart. You might have to deny your desires. If you're going to glorify God. If you're going to do what pleases Him. You make a choice not based on your happiness, but the happiness, or better yet, the advantage of others. In fact, I want you to notice down in verse 32 that Paul actually applies this principle both to those outside the church and to those inside the church. He says there that he says uh, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Those outside the church and those inside the church, no matter who it is, you do not want to put your personal interest in the way of what would be advantageous to others. What he's talking about here is he's talking about the spiritual advantage of others. Another way to say that, this is not a recipe for you to somehow become the personal benefactor to all the whims of people. You're not the patron to their every pleasure or the sponsor for every person's indulgence. Uh, Godly decision-making may, from time to time, lead you to sacrifice something to meet a material need, to meet a practical need in someone's life. It may uh, uh, lead you to give up resources, time, money, whatever it might be, 
But Paul's primary focus here is not material, it is spiritual. And he's saying that you're going to have to make decisions that are going to cost you your rights, your wealth, your freedom, your gain, whatever it might be, for the spiritual benefit of others. That's the focus. That's what he's talking about. Remember chapter 9 of this book was largely autobiographical section of Paul doing that himself. How he personally laid aside potential wealth or income, personal freedom, personal luxury, comforts, preferences, all those things so that he could minister to others. This is the focus here, decisions that we need to realize may potentially cause a brother or sister to stumble in their Christian walk. Decisions that may potentially distract them from a clear, focused worship on God. Decisions which may damage their conscience and weaken their resolve to sin. Decisions which may lead them into temptation. Decisions which may, in fact, put them in a position to be enslaved to something. These are the things Paul wants us to think about. And he says, this was his pattern. You'll see down in verse 33, this is how he ends the chapter. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Now, for those of you who are students of the Apostle Paul, those are strange words. Because you've probably heard or read in so many other places, Paul speak about the dangers of people-pleasing. The dangers of being a man pleaser. He says, even in Galatians, he says, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He says to the Thessalonian believers, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. So Paul is everywhere all the time warning us of the dangers of being people pleasers. Well, you have to understand the context of all those various statements and the context of this statement. What he's saying in all those other passages is that pleasing men is evil when you are doing it in order to garner favor for yourself or benefit for yourself or to avoid persecution or to avoid isolation or any of those negative consequences. But when it is done so as to lead someone to faith, or to lead them on a path of maturity, it is good. It's good, in other words, Paul's telling us, that you and I would be sensitive to the struggles, to the challenges, to the weaknesses, to the Fears of people who may be outside the church or even people who may be inside the church. It's godly and it's good and it's focused on the glory of God for you and I to be sensitive and accommodating to all those things. And in those matters, to make other people feel as comfortably as possible. I remember a being a young believer and had a guy who discipled me and we were just talking one day and I was just saying, you know, 
I'm just, uh, I, I just feel so comfortable around you. I'm, I'm grateful, you know, I was kind of new to the church and didn't really know people. And I said, I'm just grateful. I mean, I just feel, I feel, I don't know, I just feel comfortable around you. He said, oh, that's Christ. I had no idea. Believe me, I had no idea what he was talking about. But what he was saying is, and in those, those little, subtle, unspoken, social ways, the gospel of Christ led him to put other people at ease. And, and there's just the ways that you do that are manifold. But they are the expression of the gospel of Christ. And this is what Paul's talking about. He, he wanted to put other people at ease. He wanted to please them so that they would want to be around him and they would want to be around the church and they would want to grow in their faith or they may want to know Christ. This is glorifying God. Glorifying him. Paul gives a practical illustration for the Corinthians themselves in their own situation. Verse 25 he says this, he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So he has in mind here a personal invitation. Someone, particularly he says an unbeliever, invites you into their home and as you're in the home, they serve you a meal. They serve you meat. And in the context of Corinth, this meat would often be what we might even call secondhand meat. That is to say, it was sold at the meat market, but it had been previously used that day in a temple, uh, an idolatrous pagan temple ceremony. And so this meat would have sat before an altar for a couple of hours or something. And then they would take and they would, you know, it's Christmas time, they would repurpose the meat, right? And they would sell the meat, maybe at a discount, maybe at a premium, we're not really sure. But whatever it is, it was bought with the knowledge that this was meat that had been offered to, uh, to an idol. They would come, people would buy that meat, they would bring it home, and they would serve it. Now, for some people, this wasn't a problem. They knew meat is meat, right? Nothing really happens until you put some fire under it. They know that the meat itself can sit before a temple idol or something and, 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 and it can be sanctified by a priest, but nothing organic, physiologically, or even spiritually happens to that meat. But for others, it was a struggle. They previously had been involved with idolatry. They previously had even participated in the ceremonies. And part of the ceremony would have been offering not just the meat, but even eating a part of the sacrifice as we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians 10. Now that they are Christians, though, they no longer participate in the activity. They no longer go to the temples. They no longer are parts of the ceremony. And for them to even get near it would be to raise in their minds all of the old superstitions and fears that used to propel them about and toss them here and there and guide their life. And so they would stumble. They would be weakened. They would sit at this table and be served this meat and they would feel a sense of shame and a sense of guilt like somehow they were being unfaithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and somehow they were giving deference back to that idol by eating that meat. 
Paul's acknowledging it's not the case for everyone. Some people can sit down to this table and be perfectly at peace in their heart and mind. And so he tells them there at the end of verse 25, eat what is set before you without raising any issues of, uh, of conscience, nothing on the ground of conscience. In fact, he even quotes from the psalm there in, in uh, verse 26 about how the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And this was a common psalm used among Jews to talk about gratitude for the food that's given to us. And so he says, you can give thanks for this food because you understand that it's a gift from God that is nourishing and satisfying and meeting your needs. There's no problem in your mind whatsoever. But he says, verse 28, If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. And this is Paul applying the principle from verse 24. This is where you decide the issue of a gray area, not on your own personal feelings, not on your own personal conscience, not on what you personally struggle with, but on what someone else does. Because Paul's saying, you can't be just concerned about your own conscience. You need to be concerned about the conscience of others as well. And their conscience needs to take priority over yours. Now, what's very interesting to me is that in verse 28 and 29, he's talking about unbelievers. He says, you're in the home of an unbeliever. You've been invited into their home and they've set this food before you. And then they've highlighted to you that this was offered to an idol. And he's telling us here that even in the context of an unbeliever, you need to be sensitive to their particular mindset about what is right and what is wrong, about what is pure and what is unpure. This unbeliever would apparently conclude, or at least Paul's suggesting he would conclude, that your claim to worship Christ would somehow be compromised or inconsistent if you ate this meat. And people make judgments like that all the time. They're not right judgments. They're not biblical judgments. They, who knows where they got their ideas of right and wrong. But for them to see you acting a certain way would be con- to conclude that, first of all, you're hypocritical. Second of all, your faith doesn't mean anything to you. Maybe that your Christ is not real, that Christianity is a hoax, whatever it might be. And it really, your primary concern is not at that point, your own sensitivities, it's theirs. This is what Paul means when he says he does everything he can to please people so that they can be saved. So that he doesn't give offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Now. If you're that sensitive to people outside the church, how much more for people inside the church? When you face these gray areas, asking ourselves not whether or not we'll be entertained, pleased, satisfied, but how will this impact the people who know me, the people who see me, the people who watch me? How will it impact what unbelievers think of Christ? How will it impact believers who are trying to worship Christ? That's the focus of people who are aiming for the glory of God. There's another factor we need to consider when trying to figure out how to glorify God in these gray areas, not just the potential for personal harm, 
and not just the priority of others, but Paul wants us to consider also peace, the peace in your own conscience. And this is really the point of verses 29 and 30. Paul's simply clarifying what he said so far regarding the motives of what you're doing and why you're doing it. You are foregoing some activity or some choice, some decision that you might personally uh, do to benefit yourself. You're giving up some freedom for the advantage of others, but you're not enslaving yourself to their weaknesses, to their immaturities, to their personal standards. In fact, in your heart, you are still claiming and, and exercising the freedom that Christ is giving you. You're still giving thanks to the Lord. This is what Paul means in verse 29. After he talks about being sensitive to someone else's conscience, he says in the middle of that verse, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thanks, thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. In other words, Paul is, Paul's clarifying that we should not allow our conscience to be attacked by the legalistic standards of others. We may modify our actions for the sake of others, but we do not modify our conscience. You know what he's saying there? That when you participate in some activity, when you make some decision, and you do so having searched out the Word of God and having sought godly counsel and being confirmed in your heart that this is in true, and it truly is a matter of freedom in Christian life. And then someone comes along and casts scorn against you. You do not respond to them because you are resting in their approval. You do not respond to them because, because their pleasure with you is what gives you pleasure. You do not respond to them because somehow you're mortified of the condemnation they may feel in their heart towards you, or you're now consumed with what they think of you for personal reasons. No, we are at peace with the Lord, and we continue to rejoice in the grace and mercy and freedom that He's granted to us. In other words, Paul wants us to glorify God not only by prioritizing the needs of others, but also by rejoicing in the freedoms that God has given us in our conscience. We understand what the psalm says. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We can receive from Him on that basis. You remember in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul makes the same point. He says people are going to come along in the latter days, and they're going to start forbidding all kinds of things. They're going to forbid foods. Some of them are going to forbid marriage, probably forbidding some uh, making it sense, uh, seem as if sexual delights, uh, even within the bounds of marriage, are somehow unholy. And Paul says in that passage, quoting from the book of Genesis, from the creation account, he says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. The word of God there obviously is a reference to the Genesis passage. God himself made it holy when he declared it good. And the prayer there is the prayer of thanksgiving that he says we offer for it. In other words, we can receive these foods and, and these things and these gifts which are a part of creation which the Lord made for the enjoyment of man. He made creation. He declared it good. He gave it into our hands to subdue. And we do that within the boundaries of Christian freedom when there is no clear mandate or no clear prohibition within Scripture. And by God's 
word of uh, God's word of declaration and by our own freedom and conscience, we receive it with glory to God. In other words, we praise him. We honor him. We glorify him. And we let no one and their personal expectations broach that. We may indeed forego rights for the sake of their gain. But we don't forego rights in worship of them. We still worship the Lord. There are all kinds of things like that. You examine the issues in God's word. You think carefully about the principles. You think about the potential dangers and enslavement. You seek counsel. You, you understand all of those things. And yet you still can participate with joy and thanksgiving in the Lord. And in your heart you receive it as from the Lord. Matter of fact, flip back a few pages to Romans 14. Paul basically shares the same principles after an extended discussion of the conscience and these kinds of matters in Romans 14. He ends that chapter in verse 21 with the same focus. It is good, he says, not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because he's eating not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. He's saying, look, you can, in your own heart, you can rejoice in the Lord. And you are blessed if, you're, if your conscience and your mind is not condemned. You can glorify God in that freedom. But you also should glorify God by sensitivity to those who may indeed struggle. This this is all part of the quest. This is all part of the aim. You may yield your interest to others, but you never bow to them as your source of authority. You never look to them as your ultimate source of approval. You never find your security in their favor. You always rest in what the Lord thinks. One more factor we need to consider briefly as we're trying to figure out how to glorify God in these gray areas, not just personal harm and not just the priority of others and not just peace in your own conscience, but fourthly, the pattern that's been set for us by Christ. And we encounter here one of the most unfortunate chapter breaks in all the Bible. You may not know this, but the actual a separation of the Bible into chapters and verses didn't happen until 1551. So for the first 1500 years of the church, the Bible was written as the apostle would have written it as one continuous flow of thought. And so these things weren't broken up by chapters. And it's really unfortunate that they made a chapter break here because chapter 11 verse 1 shares really the capstone on everything that Paul has to say, the source out of everything that he has to say, as he ends in verse 31 with this admon, excuse me, in, in chapter 10, verse 31, with this admonition to, to eat or drink and do everything to the glory of God, giving no offense to Greeks or Jews or the church. And then he gives his personal example in verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved, and then be imitators of me. You know, a large part of this has been Paul's personal example. He, he returns to it here. He gave us extensive 
insight autobiographically in chapter 9 into all the sacrifices he makes. And he's saying to us, look, all of this that I'm telling you is nothing more than my application of what I see in Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And this is the course, this is the pattern of our life, you see, when we first become believers and and we're still trying to figure out our bearings in life. We know that Christ is supreme, but what we don't always quite understand how the application of the cross and how the application of his character looks in real life. And so we look to models, we look to examples. This is discipleship. Discipleship is not showing up on a Tuesday night and sitting in a classroom with a few books. Discipleship really is being involved in someone's life. It is Christ taking disciples with him wherever he went to dinner engagements, to ministry engagements, to personal times of prayer, to all of those things. It is taking people along and letting them watch your life and see your life. And we all begin life that way. We begin knowing our loyalty ultimately by Christ, but seeing the way it's lived out and fleshed out in the lives of respected people. In, in our Christian life. And that is a natural and that is a good and that's a godly thing for us to have these kinds of examples. To be able to say, I learned this from my discipler, my mentor, my teacher, my friend. And then in the natural process, we all grow and we grow and we grow. And looking at our models and our examples, we're able to clearly focus now beyond them to their ultimate model. As we grow in Christ, as we understand Christ, as we see Christ, our hearts, our understanding is increasingly captivated with Him. This is what Paul's saying to them. I have lived out before you what I saw in Christ. Let my life be a little bit of a testimony to how that ought to look in your personal decisions. And this is what guides us. This is what Paul told the Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among you, which which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He's saying to them, the mind of Christ should be your mind. And what did Christ do? He gave up privilege, glory, comfort. He gave up his own interest his own advantage. He gave up all these things so that he could become a servant, so that he could serve us even to the point of death. This is really, this is really at the heart of everything Paul has to say to us. This is really at the heart of gray matters, gray areas, these kinds of decisions. This is at the heart of knowing how to glorify God. It's simply 
knowing Christ more and more and letting Him be manifest in your life. Some of you here, you are in that class of people outside the church. You, uh, maybe you're visiting family, friends, or something for the holidays. And, and you've been around people who call themselves Christians, and all you have seen is duplicity. All you have seen is double-mindedness. All you've seen is hypocrisy. But maybe this week, you've been in someone's home, and you've seen a truly transformed life. You've seen people laying down themselves. You've seen people seeking the advantage and serving others. I want to tell you, this isn't natural to any of us. This is a demonstration of the fact that God has saved us. That we once were in bondage, every one of us, enslaved to sins and desires which loaded us down with shame and guilt. And we came to Christ. He forgave all of our sins and removed all of our guilt and shame. And so now we are free. But that freedom is not for us. That freedom is so that we can serve Him. He has purchased us. And there's no one more worthy and no one more delightful for us to serve than this Master. We invite you. Why serve your sin when you can serve Him? I want to encourage you when we close in a word of prayer here in just a moment. If you are in that place, if you, are, if you know that shame and that bondage, please come see me after the service. I would love to share with you from the Word of God how you can be free. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning for the Word. It is instructive to us. It is challenging to us. It is clarifying for us. And yes, Lord, we know that there are many challenges. We're thankful for them, the difficult decisions of life, because they drive us closer and closer to Christ. They make us think about Him more. And we want nothing less than than to be consumed with Him, to be consumed with the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ, the benefit of those who don't know You. Give us that sensitivity, Lord. Help us to die to ourselves. Let us see the dangers of sin. Let us walk on a path that glorifies you. We pray these things in Christ's name.